On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Murder on the Orient Express listener polls and preview Drive. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. Sorry this prequel episode is a few days late. Katie... I've been half dead for the past two days. Yes, unfortunately came down with a norovirus stomach flu on Tuesday morning, and we were going to record Tuesday evening to have the episode out on Wednesday, uh, and you've been out of commission until today, really. Like, yeah. this morning was the first time you've honestly been this back is, to... This has been a house of horrors. Yes, been back to a, a, a functioning level. Um so thank you for your patience. Uh, episode is a little late, but we should not have any delay on the main episode. It should be out uh, on Wednesday like normal. Again, assuming everything goes fine. I, so far, have managed to somehow avoid catching <laughs> what you had. I mean, knock on wood again, that has been one of our, like, We don't get sick at the same as a time couple. lately. Uh, we've never, ne- we've never really gotten sick at the same time. We got, right when COVID started, we both got, like, the flu. Yeah. But it wasn't COVID because we tested, uh, like, at the same time. But it wasn't bad. We were both just kind of, eh, for, like, a day, and then we were fine. But, yeah, we've gotten really lucky about that. Also, norovirus is a little bit harder to catch. I'm a prolific hand washer, and with, <laughs> norovirus isn't a respiratory disease. Yeah. I wash my hands a bajillion times a day, which helps with the... Uh, with that so yeah anyways hopefully i i will skirt it this time because i've had it quite a few times in my life and it's never fun uh but we have quite a bit to talk about we had tons of feedback on murder on the orient express and we got our preview of drive but before we get to all of that we're going to give a shout out to our patrons i put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons that's why we have two new patrons uh this week first up at the five dollar hugo award-winning level john paulie hey john that's our Polly. That's Polly. <laughs> no, it's a different John Polly. Uh, that is, uh, thank you for supporting us, Polly. That uh, Polly has been one of my closest friends since high school. Was a groomsman in my wedding, uh, and has been listening to the podcast for a long time. But finally jumped on the patron bandwagon, and we appreciate it, bud. Uh, those long nights working at the pharmacy, just doxing all your information. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we appreciate it. Uh, We also have another $5 Hugo Award winner, uh, Ethan Quist. So thank you, Ethan, also for supporting us at the $5 level. We do not know you, but I'm sure you're great because you gave us five bucks a month. So if you you don't know, at the $5 level, you get bonus access to our or access to our bonus content over on Patreon.com slash this film is lit. Every month we release an episode discussing something, usually a movie uh, that is not, you know, uh, an adaptation, just kind of whatever we want. And our most recent episode for January was Dread, and we'll have a new episode out in February uh, for that. So yeah, uh, you can listen, and we have a whole back catalog of stuff we've talked about over the years. So go check that out. On to our Academy Award winners who get uh, recognized every week dur- or every other week during the prequel because they give us fifteen dollars a month, our top patron level, and they are Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Cat Ensminger. Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says All I Want for New Year's is TFIL Merch, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all so very much for supporting us and continuing to support us even when our episodes are a day or two late. We appreciate it. You paid for the Gatorade and... (laughs) (laughs) And ibuprofen that Katie has been taking over the past few days. So 
Uh, all right, let's see what everybody had to say about Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Quite a bit. Quite a bit. Uh, on Patreon, we had four votes for the book, one for the movie, and one listener who couldn't decide. Steve from Arizona said, Gonna abstain from this one, mainly because the movie was merely okay, and I'm not a huge Agatha Christie stan. I will say I usually enjoy Kenneth Branagh's scene-chewing quite a bit, and his run as Perot was much funnier than the previous portrayal by David Suchet from the long-running BBC series. I will say I have always been a Branagh fan, and I hope someday you do Much Ado About Nothing, the most interestingly cast Shakespeare novel ever made. Interesting. Uh, if we ever Isn't get that around... the one he shot in his backyard for over like a, a summer? I'm uh, pretty sure one... I remember hearing a story that one of those Shakespeare ones, he like basically filmed in his backyard is, and cast all of his I, I don't know if that's the story of this one. Okay, I could be. Um, if we ever get around to Shakespeare, that will be very high on the list because I love, love, love Much Ado About Nothing. It's my favorite Shakespeare, hands down. Um, no, that's not this one. Okay, this is the, the one with hot one, uh, Denzel it? and... Uh, yeah. and uh, uh, isn't it Keanu in it or yeah. something? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> that one. Yeah. I'm thinking of, I think I might be thinking of a Midsummer Night's Dream. I swear I remember hearing this story on somewhere. Are you on the sure internet. you're not thinking of the newer Much Ado About Nothing? Maybe. I have no I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what you're I could have swore of. I heard a story that Kenneth Branagh shot uh, a Shakespeare adaptation like in his backyard. Over a over like a, a weekend or something. I don't know what I I'm mean. Thinking if about, it but. was this one, he has a pretty impressive backyard. But I guess it could be. I don't think that's it. Well, it's not <laughs> this one. Again, looking at, it, I know this. It was recently. It was like in the two thousands. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> matter at all. Um, if anybody knows what I'm talking about, mention. Go ahead. But otherwise, I could just be completely making this up, uh, and it may not. It may not be anything. Anyways. Um, yeah, but Shakespeare, I've been hesitant to do Shakespeare because... Then you have to read Shakespeare? Well, no, I don't, I don't <laughs> I mind I'm reading just, Shakespeare. Yeah. It's because they're plays and that and they're like made to be performed right. and that feels like cheating somehow. It is hard, somehow. yeah. yeah. Um, but maybe we'll, we'll get around to that at some point. Yeah. By Tove said, I voted yes for the book, though I probably should have abstained since I have only seen the 1970s version and not the recent adaptation. There are a number of things the older version does really well to make all the murders, murderers sympathetic. First, the movie starts with newsreel-style footage and newspaper clippings depicting the Armstrong murder and the emotional toll on the rest of the family, including the deaths or extended grief of people close to all the murders on the train. Also, the final solution scene features the eerie ritualistic stabbing of the drugged Cassetti, allowing the characters to let their personas slip for the only time in the movie. The movie focuses more on how the murder charade is a ruse thought up on the fly to foil Perot rather than a coherent plan from the start. I highly recommend watching the solution scene from the 1970s version. Oh, interesting. Is that so in the in the book? Is that similar? Like, do they the so the, it sounds like they're saying in the 70s film, the the whole thing is a ruse thought up on the fly rather than a coherent plan from the start. 
Is that the vibe you got from the book? Yeah, they kind of have oh. to because they're not expecting to be stopped by the snowstorm. Yeah. So that kind of throws a wrench in their plans because they're expecting to, you know, they make it ahead to the next like stop on the railway station. And then they have that excuse of like, oh, the murderer must have gotten off at this stop. Who knows where the murderer could have gone? But because they're now stopped by this giant snowdrift, they have to kind of like improvise oh. um, and go along with like the investigation. Okay, because I will say that's not remotely what I got in the film. In this film, it seemed yeah. like the whole plan, like like the tea leaf. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I don't think about it. Just by the way, I figured out what I was thinking of in 2012. Joss Whedon did much ado about yeah. nothing. Is you say that yeah, was, like that you, was the newer one. That was what okay. I was talking yeah, about. I didn't know. I just couldn't remember who. Directed and he literally it. filmed it in his backyard um, with like a bunch of his friends or whatever. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, not the Kenneth Branagh one. Anyway, sorry. I knew I was like I know I've heard this somewhere. What am I thinking of? But that's what it was. Anyways, um, my I apologies. have never seen that one. If I'm being honest, I don't particularly care to. No, I can't imagine that Joss Whedon doing. <laughs> <laughs> I look. I person aside, I'm a fan of Joss Whedon's work in general, but I can't imagine Joss Whedon doing uh, Shakespeare is something that the world needs. I just don't. <laughs> I, again, as much as I enjoy a lot of Joss Whedon's work, I just, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, our last comment on Patreon was from Matilde, who said, it would have been hard to decide between the book and the 74 movie, but not with the 2017 one. The book wins easily. It's one of my favorite Christie books. It's a tragic and poignant story behind the motive. The solution is outlandish, but makes perfect sense. And it's just the kind of twist that sticks with you. It's also interesting to see morality versus lawfulness being explored. And Perot's dilemma is the kind of layer I appreciated to see in his character. This recent adaptation annoyed me so much. Agatha Christie basically writes plays and scripts already. It's all there. Why would they mess with it so much? It's clunkily made. The pacing is all wrong and the aesthetic is wasted and doesn't fit the mood of the story. Coming from an experienced director like Branagh, it's even more disappointing. He's also usually doing faithful adaptations and here there are random action scenes and other editions that do nothing but muddle the story. Most of all, this random backstory for Perot. Maybe he's getting more self-absorbed with age. In any case, it contributed to removing a lot of the emotion and grip of the story, and that's kind of unforgivable in my book. I was also surprised that everyone gave flat performances. It's an all-star cast, and yet no one sparks. To me, it felt lifeless, and just like they dutifully showed up to do a job. With so many characters, a little energy and ensemble feel would have helped make them memorable and likable. Maybe I'm biased because I've been a huge fan of the 74 version since I was a kid. It's extremely close to the book, on some points even better. There are some hilarious lines and they fixed Book's weird discrimination of Italians in an equally funny way. He's actually one of my faves in that version. Plus, the whole cast brings it, especially Vanessa Redgrave as Miss Debenham and Lauren Bacall as the grandmother of Baby Daisy. I feel like it presents the story very clearly without telegraphing the ending, and it's a satisfying watch. I strongly recommend it. I think the thing that sticks out to me most in this, in Matilde's uh, points here, is 
and I didn't really think about it during the episode or as while we were watching it, but it, it totally sticks out to me now because I didn't think about it, which is that I totally agree that no, not a single performance in the movie is particularly very interesting <laughs> or <Yeah>. like, <laughs> like they're fine. They're all fine. serviceable, but I think it goes back to thing when you have a cast like that. Yeah, it seems like you should have it. You should be doing more. The only performance that stands out at all is Kenneth Branagh's performance. Yeah. And even that, I guess, is arguable how much you would enjoy it. Again, I think that depends how much of a like fan you are specifically of the book or, or other adaptations or other versions of Poirot or whatever. But um he was the one I found the most interesting by far in this movie. Wasn't that one of when you read like the review quotes? In oh, the yeah. Prequel, wasn't that one of like a contention that one of the reviewers had was that I everybody spe- else got kind of shoved into the background? Yeah, but I think that was specifically more in relation to like less the performances and more like the script and like how little we get in terms of like we get more background for Perot and stuff and we shoehorn mm-hmm. in some backstory and stuff. And so we, we get to know his character more. Uh, I, at least to me, it, it, that rev- I do remember that review, but it seemed to me they were talking more about like the way it was scripted and, and yeah. like how little time characters were given more so than like the performances. But I think it goes kind of goes hand in hand um, because, you, you know, what you're given on the page is also lends into what you right. can do. Kind of well, and I wise. think with an ensemble cast, you know, it's already hard. Yeah. But it kind of gets more difficult when you're elevating one of the characters yeah. above everybody else. And I guess you 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 fi- write a fine line obviously too with like you don't want to take any character too extreme or anything because then you'll get people especially you know fans of the source material and stuff complaining that you like turned certain characters into cartoon characters and stuff. But you know comparing it to something which I think some of our other people do here at certain points um comparing it to something like Glass Onion because we just watched it a few weeks ago um every single character in that is like which also stars Leslie Odom Jr. in a, in a murder <laughs> mystery. Every single character in that is way more memorable yeah. than anybody in this other than Poirot. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I just nobody stands out in this one, really, other than Poirot. And a little bit, Michelle Pfeiffer has an okay moment at the end, which is, you know, it's whatever. But, um, but like, comparing it again to, like, Glass Onion or, or the first Knives Out or whatever, it's just all of those characters are so... Everybody is doing something interesting, and the characters are written in a way that is, like, really interesting. Um, and they all have, like, very, you know, standout characterizations that make them... It makes you very quickly understand what their whole deal is. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in this, it didn't... You don't really get that from any of the characters. And so I think I would definitely agree uh, in, in that regard. On Facebook, we had five votes for the book and zero for the movie. Andy said, When first approaching this case, we think about all the famous Agatha Christie films we've seen, the music, the settings, the characters, and that she was writing in the 30s, and we must expect the book to be indulgent and melodramatic. What a surprise then to read the original and find tight economical prose for the first time and a structure that does away with the conventions of the novel and reads almost like a game. Indeed, the award-winning 70s adaptation clings closely to this structure, preserving the elegant logic and motivation of the unfolding puzzle. In the new film, Branoff chooses emotional beats and character over the mechanics of the mystery. But as the film goes on, the editing becomes more and more haphazard until he barely has a grasp on either. 
I myself felt great sympathy for Monsieur Brian in his own recap, not having read the original work. The case seems obvious, however. I am of an age where I know what I like and what I do not like. What I like, I enjoy enormously. What I dislike, I cannot abide. Coming back to this story as an adult in middle age, what resonated for me was the human story of the Armstrong case, how a terrible act of violence affects not only the direct victim, but the lives of all those around them. It sends out waves of trauma, guilt, and regret, and makes us come face to face with our assumptions about ourselves, our societies, our morals, and our idea of justice. With my detailed knowledge of the book and previous adaptation as my guide through the muddle, I really enjoyed the new film from that standpoint. However, I cannot lie, so I present you with two solutions. On the one hand, Agatha Christie's book rests on a masterwork of logical construction, a high point of the genre, where Branagh's film is full of the fudge. <laughs> the book is better. On the other hand, the depth or lasting meaning of this human story rests in the case of little Daisy Armstrong and the impact violence has in our lives, which Branoff makes an honest attempt to engage with emotionally, bringing out the real value. The film is better. I will leave this choice with you. Katie is right. I voted for the book. There you go. I, I will agree. Um, very fun there. Good job, Andy. But I... I uh... <laughs> I will agree that I I think that definitely what Branagh was going for. I can see what he was going for by yeah. trying to make like like Andy says here, trying to make the the moral dilemma at the end and the fallout and the trauma of this of of this murder and the the emotional stakes it has for all those people be the point. But I agree also that in doing so, he kind of gets lost in the sauce in the middle to where yeah. the, the, you, there's not enough for the mystery to really add up, like the, the nuts and bolts of the mystery to add up for first time viewers. And because there are so many characters and because you still have to do quite a bit of mystery legwork, you know, uh, narrative mystery legwork that you, that you still end up kind of short shrifting the character side to the point where it just doesn't none of it really adds up yeah i agree reason. i i can see what he was going for but it, it did not pan out yeah our other uh, our other piece of feedback on facebook came from adam who said i voted book not because i have very strong feelings about the book but more because the movie just didn't do much for me this might be because the movie had the bad luck of being viewed by me shortly after I saw Knives oh. Out <laughs> rather than when it came out. And in my opinion, Benoit Blanc is just a better Perot than Perot was. As a side note, the quote Brian was thinking of is an Arthur Conan Doyle slash Sherlock Holmes quote that goes something like, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And I have to say, I hate that quote. You know what's improbable, but I can't technically eliminate as an explanation? Magic tap dancing ghosts. So every time I can't explain why something happened, magic tap dancing ghosts did it. Not very good detective work there. <laughs> um, so uh, a couple things. One, I obviously we talked about a little bit, but I, you know, it is tough. Uh, and, and I specifically mentioned in the episode that things like Knives Out uh, and Glass Onion, which are two of my favorite movies from the past, you know, 10 years are standing on the shoulders of giants. And while it is easy to say that I, I, cause I agree, I prefer Benoit Blanc as a character to my one experience of Hercule Poirot from this adaptation. Again, it's my only frame of reference. Uh, and I'm sure there would be tons of people be like, no, he's so good of a character because of all these. And I'm like, I get that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I disagree. I would disagree were I to consume the rest of the <laughs> 
Poirot canon. Um, but I, I, I think, uh, and I think Ryan Johnson would agree. He is, he's very much standing on Agatha Christie's shoulders, um, when he's writing the Knives Out films. Um, but it does make it hard then when you go back and you have a mystery that doesn't feel as sort of compellingly crafted and the characters be, just feel, and I, I think a big part of it in this movie is just that Ryan Johnson's a more capable filmmaker than Brano is, at least to some extent in certain ways. Um, and I, I just identify with his filmmaking a lot more and just vibes with me a lot better. But that being said, I, um, I would agree. I, I, I think Blanc's a more compelling character. Um, but getting to your second point, uh, or not your second point, but pointing out the, um, the quote I was trying to think of, uh, Shelby also pointed this out on our Patreon feed or on Patreon, Patreon, that it was the Sherlock Holmes quote. And I looked it up. Um, I assume that's where it originates. It is, it's from the sign of four, which was a Sherlock Holmes story from like Mm -hmm. 1891. Um, so far preceded this, uh, this, uh, murder on the Orient express by, you know, good 40 years or whatever. Um, so it's very likely that Christie is, you know, alluding to making a reference to that with that line from Murder yeah. on the Orient Express. Um, real quick, that was Matilde. Oh, Matilde. Sorry, yeah. I thought Shelby. No, Shelby. And then so Matilde said it and then Shelby pointed out that and this is where I did know it from because I, I don't think I knew it necessarily from the Sherlock story, Sherlock Holmes story. But what I did know it from is that Spock quotes it in the 2009 yeah. Star Trek uh, reboot. And that is where it was stuck in my brain from, because I had seen that movie quite a few times <laughs> back when it came out. So that's where I was thinking of it from. I half agree and half disagree that it's like not, you know, not a great quote for a detective. I like because I understand the spirit of it. I think if you think about it, really, like if you hold it as strictly to the letter of the word or to the to the letter of the law of what it's saying, I you're right that it is like kind of you can fudge it and make it incorrect but the point being made i think still stands Mm -hmm. in a roundabout way i get what you're saying i I, yeah i get it but (laughs) over on twitter we had nine votes for the book one for just real quick sorry i gotta address that just a little bit more i think the point being that what you're saying is you know it's not uh you can't technically eliminate as a as an explanation um tap magic tap tap deads and ghosts but i think within the context of the quote itself when you have eliminated the impossible whatever remains however improbable must be the truth it's saying when you have eliminated the impossible one of those things you would eliminate as impossible is magic tap dancing ghosts because that's impossible so that wouldn't be not everyone would say that that's impossible i but sherlock holmes would well Depending on the story, I guess, because <laughs> I know Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was himself a little bit wooey. But point being that people grounded in scientific rationalism would count among the things that are impossible, uh, magic tap dancing ghosts. And so then that 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 sort of this this idiom would work because whatever is improbable magic tap dancing ghost doesn't fall into the improbable category it falls into the impossible category and so whatever explanation would have to be something other than magic tap dancing ghost anyways i think that would be the argument i would make to defend that statement but whatever fine sorry continue all right on twitter (laughs) we had nine votes for the book one for the movie and two listeners who couldn't decide 
Shelby will go down with this ship, said, It was clear to me that this movie was trying to recreate the success of modern Sherlock Holmes adaptations, but with Hercule Poirot. Making Poirot a sexier, angstier, crabby pants action hero was certainly a choice. They sure made lots of choices, and I guess it paid off because they're making a third movie. I like trains. I wish more of the movie was set on the train and used those interiors. You're adapting one of the most famous bottle episode stories out there. Why do you keep going outside? If I wanted to watch the Polar Express, I'd watch the Polar Express. I would have given it to the book for breaking that rule alone. I also found it silly that the avalanche didn't knock the train clear off the mountain, but I guess that's just the magic of cinema. I mean, it also depends on the size of the avalanche. Of all all the gimmies that (laughs) movie asked of me, that was the one that bothered me the least. I was like, I get it, you know, I I get what you're saying, but if it's a small avalanche, it's just enough to dislodge the train, but not knock it off the mountain. It's just a tiny little avalanche. Avalanches come in different sizes. There are not, not every avalanche is a a world ending gigantic avalanche. BRB writing a children's picture book called Avalanches Come in Different Sizes. It'd be fun. Um, one of them could be the one from Murder on the Orient Express that only knocks the train a little bit off the tracks. I, you know, I, I think I see what you're saying, uh, Shelby, in saying that it's trying to like kind of copy the success of the modern Sherlock Holmes adaptations. I will say I don't think it leaned too hard into that. We don't, because I think it's I, I can imagine, or I guess what I'm saying is I can imagine a version of Murder on the Orient Express that really leans into the yeah. modern Sherlock Holmes that would be very obnoxious. Um, and I actually kind of like the first uh, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. I don't even think I've seen. I, the I liked the first one too. I didn't bother with the yeah, second one because I heard one. it was really yeah, bad. Not, yeah. So, but I enjoyed the first one. But that being said, I don't think it would work. Maybe it would. I don't know. It's a very different thing. Like it, yeah. it's even a very different thing than Sherlock Holmes. You're just doing like a very yeah. But but I didn't get the feel that they were necessarily going for that same vibe in this. I he's a little angstier. He's a little sexier. Maybe I don't have a good point of comparison necessarily. I feel like I don't know if they were going for the exact same vibe. As, like, the Robert Downey Jr. or the Benedict Cumberbatch, like, Sherlock Holmes yeah, is. Yeah, I assumed that Shelby was specifically talking but about the Downey Jr. ones. I but. do agree that they were kind of, like, trying to coast off of the popularity and success of that type of incarnation I think of a detective. I think to some extent. I think it's more, it, to me, it just felt more so, like, that's kind of the we're just doing a modern take on this and 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 modern cinema all kind of feels not all but like a lot of modern cinema feels similar i i don't know i didn't get as like i not once during the watching of this movie did i go oh man this feels like they're trying to do guy ritchie's i think it was guy Ritchie. yeah it was guy Ritchie. Um, it feels like they're trying to do guy ritchie's sherlock holmes like at all but but i i mean i can see a little bit here and there what again what shall be saying i just it wasn't the overall vibe that I felt watching the film. I just felt like they were just doing a messy knives out. Like that's what it felt like to me. <laughs> but anyways, this was pre knives out though. Oh yes. Yeah. It was pre knives out. Yeah. No, I know. I know. I'm not saying that they were doing a messy knives out. I'm saying that's what it felt like to yeah. me. It's like, if, if you didn't tell me when this movie came out, I would assume it came out like the year or two after knives out. And they were just like, we'll just, uh, let's do that. But like, 
Let's get it. Let's, let's get that same all-star cast of of yeah. random people, and it's you know we have a classic murder mystery, and then we have our 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 amazing you know like it's clearly what Knives Out is again clearly Poirot and all that is what Benoit Blanc and Knives Out is all based on is, is you know is is pulling from. Um, anyways, it yeah. doesn't matter. Totally agree about uh, the train though. Yeah, I think they did not make as good of use of that set piece. As they could have. I think they made good use of it when they were on it. I thought they did some really cool stuff cinematically on the train, like mm-hmm. cinematography wise on the train. But yeah, I, I don't disagree that they. And I I felt like most of that was like front loaded. Yeah, for like sure. They did a lot better in the first half of the movie. Yeah. Of utilizing the interiors than in the last half was like kind of standard. Now we're fighting yeah. on the scaffolding. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, Kelly Napier said, Perot was too abrasive in the movie. If I'm going to have an abrasive, slightly OCD savant who's good at solving crimes by being overly observant, I'd rather have Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock Holmes. He can pull it off and have his character and still be charming. Branoff's Perot is just an asshole. Really? I see. I didn't get that from him. I liked his character. Uh, not that much. Like, not like I a... had zero strong feelings about it. Yeah, I guess I didn't have strong <laughs> feelings, but I just didn't dislike him. I thought he was fine. I don't know. That's interesting. Um, Kelly went on to say the expansion of the Perot character was unnecessary. I don't agree with that. We didn't need Jerusalem to tell us what kind of person he was. We didn't need the apparent lost love either. Also, the addition of the action sequences was ridiculous. So many guns, which is so out of character for the characters. He's Jason Bourne all of a sudden, chasing people through scaffolding. Give me a break. I was also disappointed that so many of the socially unacceptable phrases and words used to describe people of varying nationalities and or race were left in the script. So much was rewritten, it seems this could have been changed as well. I accepted it in the book because there wasn't an option, but it made me bristle hearing it in the movie. To give the movie some credit, it's visually stunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would agree with a lot of it. I don't necessarily dis- I don't necessarily agree that we don't need the Jerusalem thing. I thought that was a fun introduction but, but yeah, for the Yeah, that character. didn't bother, didn't me, bother at all. me at all. But... And I, I think, like, coming from the viewpoint of, like, assuming that the audience is totally unfamiliar yeah. with Puro. Yeah, for me, it worked fine. I don't mind having, like, an, a little introduction yeah. scene to him. The lost love thing oh. was totally un... It didn't mean because anything. it didn't mean anything. Didn't That's go the anywhere. Yeah, we just it, don't... We never went back to Unless it. What was it there for? My only thought is that they, they were hoping, banking on this becoming a series yeah. and we're and we get more of it in death on the nile or whatever like that's the only thing that makes any sense and even then it's still you need more for, we, if they're going to include it at all in this one we, there should have been more to it yeah than just him longingly looking at a picture a few times like it just doesn't really add anything um interesting um page said this is my first time reading christy or seeing an adaptation of her work and i have to give it to the book the book was so much fun the ending was so delightfully absurd that I was laughing through the, fr- the final few chapters. I found the movie's ending to be painfully melodramatic. The tone was nowhere near as fun. I preferred how cheeky and laid-back Perot felt in the final scene of the book compared to his beleaguered and conflicted film counterpart. The one change to Perot's character in the film that I did like was the implication that his obsession with perfect order was a burden as well as an asset. I thought that it would come back in a bigger way towards the end, 
especially with how messy and chaotic the case turned out to be. But instead, we just get Poirot pontificating about the nature of justice. I thought he might get overwhelmed and frustrated with the conflicting facts of the case and start to make mistakes, but that doesn't really happen. His character just kind of shifts into being obsessed with justice instead of things being precise, which I guess you could argue is the same thing. Other than the tone, I felt like the film lacked the energy this sort of story needed towards the end. I'm hesitant to blame this on Branoff or the DP, as I agree with you guys that they really tried to insert some creative and interesting shots, especially given the limitations of the space that they were shooting in. I think the problem could lie with the editing, but I'd have to rewatch the film to say for certain, and I don't think I'll be revisiting this one anytime soon. Not, not much of a rewatcher, yeah. to be honest. I would like to give a shout out to the set decorators and costume designers. The sets and costumes were a visual treat. I hard agree with that. Mm -hmm. The costumes looked great. Yeah. I also thought that I was impressed with Josh Gad's performance in this. He's been in my periphery as an obnoxious Disney comic relief guy, but perhaps that was a little unfair of me. I thought he did a great job with this role and played the character a little darker than I was expecting. I will say that's the only other performance, and I almost mentioned it, and it's not even that it's particularly like amazing or anything, but it's just that for Josh Gad... For Josh I Gad, was like, this is like a different yeah, thing. Yeah, it's different it's than different what I've than seen what from I, you. It's different than what I expected coming in knowing Josh Gad was in this movie. Yeah. That was the thing. I was like, it's not even like particularly interesting or like, you know, uh, it didn't grab my attention that much. But it being Josh Gad made it more interesting than it uh, than it could have been otherwise. So I would agree with that. Um, I also agree. I, I think the, the point is a really interesting one about um, the OCD kind of thing that they set up and that not really paying off super concretely in the film. You kind of touched on it. And this is what I would say is like, I definitely think that what they're going for and it's there a little bit in the film is that Perot needs things to, to make sense, to be balanced, to, to, to kind of um, add up mm -hmm. basically. And I think what they're going for at the end is that that actually initially he feels like that is going to lead him to or initially the audience and himself. We think that that's going to be the thing that leads him to um, siding with, quote unquote, justice and like facts be, or not facts be damned, but um, motivations and stuff be damned. His OCD won't let him not solve this case properly. Yeah. But what actually the OCD ends up doing, and again, I'm saying OCD to kind of fill in for he's not diagnosed, you know, it just. Right. It, it's kind of, of implied yeah. by the story, but, yeah. but yeah. I'm just using it to kind of as a fill in for his overall neurosis kind of neurosis or whatever. Um, but what it ultimately ends up leading to isn't, is kind of an, uh, uh, um, an outcome that we, the audience and himself even didn't expect, which is once he sees all the pieces and sees how the scales of justice should be weighed here, it's not solving the case the way he traditionally would. The thing that makes this even mm -hmm. quote unquote is nobody going to jail for yeah. what has transpired. Yeah. So I think it kind of works out. I will agree that it's not maybe quite as, I don't know perfectly executed as you could do it but that being said i think it's handled in a way that i thought was and again it was the most interesting part of his character and the story to me was that resolution with what is justice what is perot 
how, how, how he views justice, how he views cases and all this sort of stuff, and what he ends up deciding to do ends up being the most interesting thing in the movie. And I, I think it could have been handled worse, but it also could have been handled better. So Our last comment on Twitter was from Catherine Shields, who just responded with a picture of the masterpiece mystery version <laughs> of this story. Which, what is that? Is um, that the BBC? Yes, I one? believe that is okay. like the BBC um, PBS property yeah um which i i am assuming is their uh way of saying that that is the preferred <laughs> adaptation i would assume i'm i'm scrolling through imdb to see if the casting has the person mentioned earlier and it doesn't have any casting why does this not have any casting what was that guy's name david's yeah it's this one so yeah that's it yeah it's the bbc version which is i think in in the u.s it airs under yeah, um, it's like the Masterpiece, masterpiece Theater. Masterpiece Theater on PBS yeah. or whatever, but yeah. All right. On Instagram, we had four votes for the book and three for the movie. Anal Fracture 42 hey. um, voted for the book and replied, just a classic. Just a classic. Three votes for the movie and nobody coming out swinging for it. Uh, no, nobody came out swinging for the movie here. Nope. I have some thoughts on that, though, when we're, when we're done with all our feedback. Okay. Um, on Goodreads, we had two votes for the book and zero for the movie. Uh, Mecky Ames? Maybe? Maybe. <laughs> I'll take it. I don't know. I, I don't know how else I would pronounce that. Um, Mecky Ames said... Finally made it through the backlog of episodes for properties where I have read the book and seen the movie so I can make comments. The book is way better than the 2017 version of the film. The tragedy here was wasting your time on the lesser of the movies, especially since several of your issues with the film, mm. additions for the sake of the film medium and trying to make it more actiony slash exciting, do not exist in the 1974 version. Still an absolutely star-studded cast, and they deliver top-notch, even Oscar-worthy performances. Albert Finney's Poirot was much closer to the source material, a character that Agatha Christie said is, quote, a detestable, bombastic, tiresome, egocentric little creep. Kenneth Branagh is far too adorably irritating to really be Poirot. And I get it, you don't really want to have the main character have a main character that is like that. He isn't a likable character. I've read several of the Perot novels, though, and it is completely not the correct characterization. Hang on. I've read several of the Perot novels, and though it is completely not the correct characterization, my favorite Perot is Peter Ustinov. Ustinov. They're saying even, they've read several of the novels, and even though P Peter Ustinov's version of Perot isn't exactly right. accurate to the novel version, it's still their favorite version. That took me a minute because yes, I kept my brain kept wanting yeah, to. No, I was words. doing the same thing, reading it, trying to figure out. It, it was just, yeah, yeah. Um, however, favorite Perot aside, and just comparing movie quality and fidelity to the novel, the 1974 version of the movie is excellent and superior to the 2017 version. While on the subject, I think the 2022 Death on the Nile ever so slightly edges out the 1978 version. Huh. The very interesting cinematography pushes the 2022 to the lead. I would have a harder time choosing the book or movie with the, 20, with the 1974 version. I think the movie might get it because the characters are brought to life so well and minor changes don't bother me. 
Brian mentioned Knives Out and Glass Onion. I love Benoit Blanc and think he is the perfect, likable reimagining of Hercule Poirot. That foghorn Langhorn accent is the perfect effect to bring forward all of Poirot's annoying traits, but make him not as detestable. And despite my fondness for Agatha Christie's properties, I'm more excited for the third film in Ryan Johnson's series than Kenneth Branagh's third installment. Keep being awesome. I mean, I would agree with that, although I haven't seen Death on the Nile. Um, Apparently it has interesting cinematography, though. It's funny because the only thing I've seen from that movie is people bitching about the CG on like Twitter. I have literally nothing about that film. I didn't either. The only thing I've seen is somebody making fun of one of the opening shots like the cg in it because Mm -hmm. like there's it's lit in a way where like (laughs) there's light sources coming from really wrong angles i don't know i've seen some people complaining about some of it but that that was just one shot like from whatever i'm sure there is lots of other interesting cool stuff uh in the movie but yeah i don't know anything else about about that one uh yeah it uh, you know we it is when we do these episodes where we have our our audience vote we we don't we just what we do whatever the audience says, yeah. and if they pick the 2017 one, we do the 2017 one. Uh, we had bl- lots of people uh, very adamant that you know lots of people wanted us to do the 1974 one, and that it's their favorite version, as you've heard throughout these comments. But that was not where the numbers landed on the polls. So <laughs> our last comment on Goodreads was from Miko, who said. I may have gone a little overboard with this one. Not only did I watch the 2017 film, but also the 1974, 2001, and 2011 movie TV adaptations. I'd rank the 2017 film the worst of the bunch, even under the generally despised 2001 Alfred Molina version. Why? Because at least that functions as a detective story you can follow along. From what I have seen from Branagh, he is generally an okay director. I say generally. Had I money, I'd support you just to make you watch his god-awful Artemis Fowl adaptation. But to me, this movie is poorly edited, specifically for a murder mystery. Even seeing it after the other adaptations, I was still confused at parts. Some examples where I blame the editing for causing needless confusion... There's not one mention of Princess Dragomirov's first name until at the very end when Perot says it's Natalia out of nowhere as he explains the H on the handkerchief. Okay, this is really great because I will say I, I, this first one was a point that I was like, when that happened in the movie, I was like, Why, what? Yeah. what is her name? Oh, her name's Natalia. I had no idea. Like, I would never... Okay, so I, I'm glad I wasn't because some of those things I don't like when we're taking notes and stuff when we're watching it. I'm like, I'm sure I just yeah, missed it. Yeah, it's easy some to point. miss details yeah. when we're taking notes. Uh, the scene of Perot questioning Dragomirov drops us in the middle of it and starts with the line, and after that, similarly, we see Marquez say, No, I didn't say I was a chauffeur, but what prompted this is not seen. Hmm. Perot mentions Marquez giving Masterman an alibi, and Debenham says, Perot asked Estravados about her dressing gown, but we do not actually see either of those referenced things during the earlier interviews. The conductor states at the start of the second day that he'll move Monsieur McQueen into Monsieur Book's compartment, and Book slept in another coach, but how? The train is full. There's no added slip coach like in the book where Book moves to. And why was this room switch not done the first night? Uh, I don't, I don't know. know. I, I, that is a detail <laughs> I that I didn't notice or so. I don't know. The, the only one of these so far that I was really stuck out to me was the, the first one. That Natalia thing. I was like, what? Her name's Natalia? I didn't have any idea though that. What? Um, and last one. 
During the derailment, Marquez's photos spill and Perot references those when determining he was a chauffeur. Later, Perot references the Countess's luggage tags alongside her passport when revealing her true initials. But we don't see the photos nor the tags clearly earlier and don't get a flashback later. It's like the movie expects us to be Perot and notice and remember everything. What annoys me more is that none of these are issues in the early screenplay. It's so much clearer. Yes, I even read a draft script out <laughs> of curiosity. Lord. The train and Kalai coach out, room layouts are specified, details pointed out, and frequent flashbacks and intercuts are used. Even Perot's photo of his friend to whom he laments how he left the police as, as he did not trust the system. There's still action, more in fact, but at least the early script would have worked as a murder mystery story, if not a Perot story. It's like Branagh thought that the movie just ke- if the movie just keeps moving, the details don't matter. But I shouldn't be questioning if the movie is inventing evidence on the fly during a murder mystery. It makes the atmosphere confused and Poirot looks like he's just guessing. Try as I might, I cannot separate Poirot from David Suchet. I mean the man played him for 25 years, so the Branagh interpretation does not really do it for me. Book is clearly superior, and now I want to read more from Agatha Christie. Fair enough. I will say, um, I wonder if to some extent what the issues here, and especially with the editing and stuff, because that was mentioned by several people, is I wonder if the studio or somebody was like, this film needs to be under two hours. Yeah, maybe. And if maybe there's a version of this film that is two and a half hours, or 240, or three hours, that is... Um, cause we know, uh, we know Branagh is not opposed to making long films. I believe, uh, the, that one, uh, his, uh, one of the, one of the Shakespeare adaptations that I was reading, Hamlet, perhaps? I think it's Hamlet was like four <laughs> hours long. So he's not opposed to making long films. Um, so I'm betting or wondering if the studio was like, look, people know what the murder on the Orient Express, people know the story. They know the twist. Mm-hmm. The, the mystery doesn't have to add up perfectly. But if it feels if it's three hours long, nobody's it's people are going to feel like it drags and they're going to hate it or something. It's like my only thought is that maybe the studio and stuff like had him cut it down um, from what was maybe originally a more, uh, you know, comprehensive Mm -hmm. narrative potentially. Yeah. Um, So our listener polls winner was the book with 24 votes to the movies five plus three listeners who couldn't decide. Uh, Nobody came out swinging for the movie. No. It's always interesting to me that you mentioned earlier that the reason we did the 2017 film was because we did a listener poll, and Uh we asked asked you, the listeners, should we do 1974 or 2017? And 2017 did win out. It was not by an enormous margin, but it did win. And it's always interesting to me then when we do like the follow-up because inevitably the follow-up is almost always like, why didn't you guys do the other movie? Yeah. The other movie is so much better. Yeah. And I'm like, where are you people coming from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why, I will say. Where are all the people who voted for the 2017 film right now? Yeah. I do wonder if part of that isn't, and this is pure speculation, is that even some of the people who vote for the book and maybe come out and talk about how they prefer the book and how they prefer the 1974 movie. 
if even some of those people, if, if this is you, by the way, if any of our commenters who came out and was like, hey, I love, and not, not people who are like, you should have done the 1974 movie. I don't think those people would have voted for the 2017 movie. But people who are like, oh, the 1974 version's better, or just said, oh, the book's better, blah, blah, blah. I, I think, if I had to guess, we, we have a, a, lo- a large portion of our audience, not a large, but a portion of our audience were people that came over from good, bad, or bad, bad. Yes. And so I think what happens sometimes is people want, and, and even people who haven't necessarily, I think that's a built-in audience that would want this outcome, but I think that even people without of, outside of that want to hear us tear apart a movie. Yeah. Or are interested in the idea of hearing us be like, what the what were they thinking? Like rip apart a movie a little bit. I think that people find that entertaining, especially people who are coming from good, bad, or bad, bad. And so they're like, when they see these two, they're like, oh, I'm picking the one that I know is like not considered as good. But also in this instance, I think anybody who's voting who doesn't have any idea, like who's just voting who has not seen any of them yes, is going to go is going to vote for the the newer the one. The one that they know they can yes. watch on 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 Disney or whatever. Yeah. No, and, I agree. And and who has people in it that they know and stuff like that. You know, they're they're not going to want to watch the 1970 version. And so I think you would get a quite a I think I think part of the voting skewed numbers is people who aren't really like don't really know that much or is like whatever, but then also I think there's probably a small portion who are like I'd rather hear them talk about the worst movie because it'll be more entertaining maybe yeah maybe i don't know i mean logically i know all of that but it is <laughs> it is still funny to me yeah. to then get the feedback and have so much of the feedback be like yeah i lament that you <laughs> yeah that you it did not funny. do the other version of the film and then nobody comes out swinging for the 2017 version maybe we literally need, no one yeah maybe we need to do a thing where we wait votes <laughs> Where it's like, if you're on Patreon, your votes get weighted slightly heavier. I don't know. That seems undemocratic. I I agree. I'm just wondering if there's like a way to, I don't want to say actual fans, but people who, not actual fans. I guess what I'm saying is, I wouldn't be surprised if some uh, not small number of the people who voted for the 2017 version didn't even listen to the episode. Yeah. Yeah. At all. You know what I mean? Yeah. But are just like, oh, or at least maybe haven't listened yet. I could be wrong about that. Maybe every single person who voted listened is, a, is an avid listener. It's very possible. But if you were scrolling through and there's a podcast that you don't really listen to that much, or, you know, you listen to for a while off and on, but you see yeah. they're doing an episode on Murder on the Orient Express and you're like, ah, I've heard of the 2017 one and you just vote on that without really thinking. I wonder if that's even plays into it to some extent, too. I don't know. No, I'm sure it does. So I guess my, that was my point is that if we found a way to be like, wait the the votes of people that we know actually listen to the show more somehow than just general votes. And my my way of doing that was well, patrons obviously listen to the show, but I, I agree that's not necessarily that's not the the best way to go about doing that. I was kind of just joking a little bit, but um, but anyways, anyways. All right. Lots of feedback. Uh, yeah. Oof. Thank you all so much for all that feedback. We have uh it's we're we're not learning things because we had so much yes. so much feedback. Um but we do have our segments where we're gonna learn a little bit about the next story we're talking about, which is drive. If I drive for you, you give me a time and a place. I give you a five minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours, no matter what. I don't sit in while you're running it down, I don't carry a gun. 
drive. All right. Drive is a 2005 novel by American crime writer James Salas, uh, who is also known for the Lou Griffin detective series, um, which I had not heard of. No, but um, it's, it's like his next biggest thing that he wrote. Huh. So maybe you've heard of it. I know. Uh, Drive, the novel, is an expansion of a short story of the same name that Salas originally wrote for the noir anthology Measures of Poison in 2002. Um, so he wrote that short story and then later expanded on it. Mm-hmm. A couple reviews. Publishers Weekly called it Salas's, quote, most tightly written mystery to date, worthy of comparison to the compact, exciting oeuvre of French noir giant Jean-Patrick Manchet. Hmm. Whoever that is. I'm not familiar enough with this genre to know all the name drops. You're not a big French noir fan? I'm really not. (laughs) Um, I I don't have anything against it. I'm just not familiar with it. Uh, Marilyn Stasio, writing for the New York Times, called the novel, quote, a perfect piece of noir fiction. And Paul Skenazy, what a name, um, right, of the Washington Post praised the author's, quote, refreshing, even startling prose and called it, quote, a lovely piece of work that makes you wish some other writers <laughs> would take lessons from him. All right. And I love that so much because I really want to know. Who, who, what who book he had just who read? He's being passive aggressive. <laughs> yeah, what to book he had just right read? There. Who is catching strays <laughs> on that one, man? Um, Entertainment Weekly wrote that the novel quote reads the way a Tarantino or Soderbergh neo noir plays, artfully weaving through driver's haunted memory and fueled by confident storytelling and keen observations about movie making, low life living, and yes, driving. There you go. Um, And my last fun fact here, there was not a whole lot to be found about this novel, uh, was that Salas also published a sequel to Drive titled Driven (laughs) in 2012. Fantastic. All right. Let's learn a little bit more about the film Drive. So you just moved to L.A.? No, I've been here for a while. What do you do? I drive for movies. Isn't that dangerous? It's only part-time. You put this kid behind the wheel, there's nothing he can't do. Kid, I want you to meet Mr. Bernie Rose. My hands are a little dirty. So am I. My husband is coming home. Where is he? He's in prison. There's some guys that want me to do a job for him, and I'm not going to do it. What is that you got there? One of those men gave you that? What's the job? get your money his debts paid you never go near his family again drive is a 2011 film directed by nicholas winding refn uh, known for the neon demon only god forgives valhalla rising and bronson among others the film is was written by hossein amini known uh for obi-wan kenobi uh the snowman Snow White and the Huntsman, 47 Ronin, and Killshot, among other things. I had to mention Killshot because Killshot was the one other big film before Gone Girl that was filmed in Cape Girardeau, which is the town that we live in. 
Killshot is... Uh, I'm not familiar with that film. I am not. I, I, I remember hearing about it when I was taking film classes at the oh. university here because uh, some people, like my professor, worked on it a little bit um, or did something on it when they were here. Mm-hmm. Um, it is from like the early 2000s. I think it was yeah. or the late 90s or early. I think it's like 2003. Well, or something. Should we watch it so we can point at familiar landmarks? There's, uh, <laughs> I watched the trailer and the clock tower stairs, which nice. everybody is in the trailer. Uh, it's got I think Thomas Jane might be in it. I can't remember. It's got some names in it. It's like, a, you know, it was a, a relatively big movie. Um, not, it wasn't like a huge, didn't win yeah. a bunch of awards. It wasn't not, not like Gone Girl, you know, it didn't have like Ben Affleck in it and win like a bunch of Oscars and stuff or get nominated for a bunch of Oscars. But, um, anyways, uh, I just thought that was interesting cause I saw he wrote it and I was like, Hey, what's that other movie that they filmed in Cape Girardeau? <laughs> the film stars Ryan Gosling, Carrie Mulligan, Brian Cranston, Christina Hendricks, Ron Perlman, Oscar Isaac, and Albert Brooks, which is a heck of a cast. The film has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 78 on Metacritic, and a 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb, and it was nominated for one Oscar for sound editing. The film made $81 million against a budget of $15 million. So, uh, producers on the film, Mark Platt, who's known for Legally Blonde, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, La La Land, Aladdin, and a million other things, and Adam Siegel optioned the novel after they read a review of it in Publishers Weekly that you mentioned earlier. Uh, and the driver supposedly intrigued Siegel uh, because the, the character of the driver uh, apparently in, in, <laughs> intrigued Siegel because, quote, he was the kind of character you rarely see anymore. He was a man with a purpose. He was very good at one thing and made no apologies for it. End quote. The character interested Platt because he reminded him of movie heroes that he looked up to as a child, including the people like usually portrayed by Steve McQueen and Clint, Clint Eastwood, which those two producers reasons for making this, this movie made me go oof. And I was like, this is, is this movie like, terrible. I feel like <laughs> not that, terrible, but is this movie like <laughs> going to be rough? <laughs> I feel like that's not, not a character that you rarely. I know I, it's I, lots of baggage. My nose, yeah. like, there's a lot of weird baggage in both of those statements. Uh, also, I realized, and I knew this, but I didn't know it until I, this moment that Mark Platt is Ben Platt's dad. So there you go. Uh, yep. We've all been talking about Nepo yeah. babies lately, yep. right? <laughs> That's yep. Uh, so Hussein Amini said adapting a novel was very difficult because the the novel itself is a nonlinear is structured nonlinearly, and this made it very tricky a very tricky structure for him to adapt, and that he found the book to be short, gloomy, and quote like a poem, end quote. Hmm. Uh, and so he had a hard time adapting it. Initially. You know, as I said, I don't know anything about French noir. Yeah. But it doesn't surprise me to hear that it's gloomy and like a poem. Yeah. That sounds like French that noir sounds, should be that. It yeah. sounds right. It yeah. feels right in my soul. Yeah. Uh, the adaptation was announced in 2008, initially with Neil Marshall set to direct, who's known for Game of Thrones, Black Sails, Westworld, Doomsday, and The Descent, among other things. Uh, direct in, in all of those things, um, like a handful of episodes of Game of Thrones and Black Sails uh, in Westworld. Uh, and then it was initially planned as a vehicle for Hugh Jackman to star. But by 2010, hmm. both Marshall and Jack, Jackman had left the project. Platt then would go on to contact Gosling, who, who he was a big fan of, and he had on his his list of, quote, people that I have to work with before I quit or die. Actually, I, I say I put quotes around that. That's not what he called it. But it was the interview I saw was something along the lines of like he has a list of people he wants to work with before he either gets out of the industry or dies. 
and Ryan Gosling was one of those people. And Gosling apparently had been wanting to work on an action film and was specifically attracted to this script because he thought it was more character focused than many of the other action movies that he had been, you know, reached out to about. Um, when asked about his impressions on the script, Gosling said, quote, basically, when I read it and trying to figure out who would do something like this, the only way to make sense of the, this is that this is a guy that's seen too many movies and he started to confuse his life for a film. He's lost in the mythology of Hollywood and he's become an amalgamation of all the characters that he admires, end quote, which to me feels like Gosling has a much more interesting understanding of this character than either of the producers did. <laughs> Because the producers are like, he's a real man and he doesn't apologize. And he's like Clint Eastwood. And Ryan Gosling's like, this guy's seen way too many movies. And doesn't, <laughs> like he he feels like he's peeling back some layers there. Yeah. And the, the producers were like, he's a man's man who doesn't apologize to anybody because he's good at driving cars. Like Steve McQueen or I don't know. It's just <laughs> just felt like he actually kind of understood the character. But whatever. Or at least put an interesting spin on the character. Um, so once Gosling signed on, he was a big enough name at this point that he was allowed to select the director of the film. And this is the oh. first time he had ever gotten that uh, being signed on to a film. Hmm. And he decided uh, he wanted Reffin to direct it, saying, quote, it had to be him. There was no other choice. So supposedly, from what I have read, when casting roles in his films, uh, Nicholas Winding Reffin does not actually watch casting tapes or have his actors audition. Instead, he meets them and casts them on the spot if he feels they are right for the role. At the time of Mulligan's casting, Reffin had seen uh, had not seen an education, which was like her big breakout role right before mm -hmm. this. But his wife was a big fan of the film and Mulligan's performance, and she urged him to cast Mulligan in the film. So he ultimately did. Also, eventually, they're, they're trying to cast Christina Car or Hendrix's character for a while. I think they said they auditioned uh, quite a few different people, including like porn stars and stuff, but nobody like fit the role that they wanted. I, I don't know if the, if the character in the movie is a porn star. I don't remember. Reffin's wife had seen pictures of Christina Hendricks and found her very beautiful and then, then recommended her for the role of Blanche in the film. Mm. And so to me, it kind of sounds like Reffin just kind of casts whatever women his wife is attracted to in his movies. A king. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> uh, both of the women in this movie that were cast were people his wife was like, you should put them in the movie. He's like, okay. <laughs> it's, what it, it's what it said on Wikipedia, so I don't know. thought that was interesting. All right. Um, getting into some IMDb trivia now. Uh, despite the storyline uh, being, you know, revolving around driving, uh, hence why it's called Drive, uh, Refn has no interest in cars. He doesn't have a driver's license and apparently has failed his driver's test eight times at the eight time times? That the, this note was written on eight? IMDb. <laughs> yep. That's got to be the parallel parking. Um, very famously, yeah, right. Uh, very famously, Gosling's performance has very minimal dialogue. The film as a whole does, but specifically Gosling's performance. Uh, and in the film, the driver only speaks a few words at a time. And in the entire film, the driver speaks 116 lines with a total of 891 words. So if you're wondering, you know, if you've seen it before, and you're like, he doesn't talk much. That's the exact breakdown. Because he's a man's man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's also just an awkward fuck. Like, I, I, it's been a long time <laughs> since I've seen this movie, but the point is, like, he's just kind of... Kind yeah, of a weirdo. Kind of a weird guy, yeah. Um, or, you know, it, it will, it, okay, I say this, it's been... I saw this movie in theaters when it came out in 2011, have not seen it since then, so I remember literally nothing about it. 
Uh, so there's in the film, Ryan Gosling holds the steering wheel in a particularly unusual way where he has his thumbs crooked over the outside of the wheel rather than hooked around the inside and in like more of a normal grip. Mm-hmm. And apparently that's the way stunt drivers tend to drive and hold the wheel so that they avoid broke breaking their thumbs during impacts in. Interesting. Because if you hold your. Yeah, it makes sense to yeah. me. Uh, small detail, apparently, that he uh, he got from other stunt drivers. Should I be holding my wheel like that? I don't want to break my. You're thumbs. not planning to get into car accidents. Well, on the no, but way. I might. Sure, but okay, <laughs> yeah, yes, you should. You should hold <laughs> you should hold your thumbs on the outside of the steering wheel. Although the film ultimately ends up being kind of a quiet noir thriller, uh, crime thriller, as we kind of discussed a little bit, the trailer at the time apparently gave the impression that this was a car chase film a la Fast and the Furious. So much so to the point that a a woman sued the studio because she went into this movie thinking it was going to be like a fun Mm. action, you know, uh, Fast and Furious and got this like slow boil noir drama character piece and was like this. What? No. Uh, so I thought that's a wild thing to sue. Over. I could not find if she won the suit or not. I would imagine she probably did not. Um, so as I mentioned, Oscar Isaac is in this film and he worked extensively with Refn to further develop his character in the film, uh, because apparently in the book and the, the character he's playing, whose name is Standard, I believe, is kind of a uh, an archetypal like ex-convict character. But Oscar Isaac wanted him to be more interesting because uh, he couldn't find anything to connect to in the character when he read the script the first time. So he ends up Oscar Isaac was the one who ended up adding this backstory about his character wanting to like start a restaurant and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, so he kind of like contributed a lot to his role. Very famously in this movie, uh, Ryan Gosling pretty much always has a toothpick in his mouth. And apparently this is a tribute to his father who quote, always had some kind of stick in his mouth, end quote, which I thought is a weird That's a weird sentence. way to say toothpick. <laughs> always had some kind of stick in his mouth. My, my thinking is that it was like either a toothpick or like um, he would have like a, maybe some straw or like a, a sucker or like he, he had an yeah. oral fixation, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Um, so when this film came out, getting into some reviews, it was one of the highest ranked and most featured films on the critics end of the year top 10 list. It was ranked as the fourth best film of the year behind The Tree of Life, The Artist, and Melancholia on the Metacritic's tally of top 10 films. It was also picked as the best film of the year by Peter Travers of Rolling Stones, Richard Ropert of the Chicago Sun-Times, James Rokey of Box Office, Joshua Rothkopf uh, of Time Out New York, Neil Miller of Film School Rejects, Mark Russell of The Oregonian, and a staff critic from Empire Magazine. Uh, getting to some of those specific reviews, Peter Travers of Rolling Stone gave the film four out of four stars, saying, quote, it's a brilliant masterpiece, or sorry, quote, it's a brilliant piece of nasty business, and Refn is a virtuoso blending tough and tender with such an uncanny skill that he deservedly won the Best Director Prize at Cannes, which, even though this was only nominated for one Oscar it, or it uh, for sound editing, yeah, I did see that, um, I think it was nominated for more stuff at Cannes, and specifically mm-hmm. Refn won Best Director at Cannes, so... Movie Line's Stephanie Zakarik rated the film a 9.5 out of 10, complimenting the action and writing that, quote, it defies all the current trends in mainstream action filmmaking. The driving sequences are shot and edited with a surgeon's clarity and precision. Refn doesn't, Refn doesn't chop up the action to fool us into thinking it's more exciting than it is, end quote. She also admired Refn's skill in handling the violence uh, and the understated romance between Gosling and Mulligan. 
And finally, Roger Ebert's review of Drive had it ranked as the seventh best film of 2011, according to him. He praised the film saying, quote, here is a movie with respect for writing, acting, and craft. It has respect for knowledgeable moviegoers, end quote. Ooh. Which is an insufferable <laughs> line, but whatever. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to remind you, you can uh, support us on Patreon, as we mentioned earlier, but also follow us on social media. We really love getting the interaction. These are our favorite episodes like this when we do get tons of comments and stuff to talk about, even though it makes these prequel episodes a little bit longer. It's, it's a ton of fun, and we love getting all that feedback. So follow us on social media. Also, if you if you do support us on Patreon at that $15 up and up level, not only do you get your name read every two weeks during these prequel episodes, you also get to pick some of the stuff that we do. You get priority recommendation status, and Drive is a patron request from... It is from Steve from Arizona. There you go, Steve from Arizona. All right, Katie, where can people watch Drive? Well, as always, you can check with your local library, or if you still have a local video rental store, you can check with them. Uh, you can stream this with ads through Tubi, or you can rent it for 3 to $4 from Amazon, Vudu, Apple TV, YouTube, Redbox, AMC Theaters on Demand, or Spectrum. There you go. I uh, I mean, I say this every time, but I am really looking forward to watching this one again because it has been a long time. <laughs> it's mm. been since this movie came out, since I saw it. And I remember quite liking it when it came out, but it was also, again, very different person in 2011 than I am in 2023. We hadn't even met yet. No. <laughs> I was we still hadn't. in college. We were, we were both, we were both in, college, in college, yeah. Um, it was my senior year, I think. Um, my first senior year. <laughs> I was dating a dickhead in 2011 there you go um but yeah uh i i think i i think i'm pretty sure i saw this at the um what's that one theater in st louis the um oh it's got a weird name moolah oh the moolah i saw this at the moolah in st oh. louis which is a cool theater if you're ever in st louis and want to find a, a go to a cool movie theater go check out the moolah which i, I can't remember where is it in south it's city or i don't remember where it is i mean it's downtown i think yeah somewhere i don't remember but anyways uh yeah it's it's a cool place to watch a movie um but that, that's where i saw this i'm fairly certain because uh, i don't know if this had a super wide release i can't remember but anyways um yeah i'm looking forward to revisiting it and seeing if it holds up and what i think of it now uh it's the only refin film i've seen i've not seen neon demon or the the one he followed this up with which also stars ryan gosling i'm pretty sure uh is only god forgives which i did not get the same sort of acclaim mm. that this one did it was like kind of a letdown critic because everybody was like oh my god the refin's gonna be the next tarantino like this is yeah. the best movie that's come out in a decade or whatever uh and then it he has not matched at least from my knowledge he has mm. not lived up to that since drive came it out. happens buddy yeah i mean look if you can make one movie that people put as uh, that many people put on their top 10 if you can make one movie period do it at all but, yeah. but like if you make a movie that a bunch of people put on their best movie of the year list um you're, you do it you did something right so uh yeah uh i'm i'm interested to check it out uh come back in uh well less than a week's time at this point because we're a little late on this prequel episode and we'll be talking about drive until that time guys gals on binary pals everybody else Keep reading books, keep watching movies, and, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.